0: In Narnia, we have seen how God regenerates sinners. We've seen that dragons can't undragon themselves no matter how hard they try to do it. Uh, One or two scales might come off, but they still look like a dragon. They still act like a dragon, right? And so the dragon has to stop trying to undragon themselves on their own and submit to the one who has the ability to change them and to change their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, right? Right? And so, we essentially have to let go and let God, right? Yes. Yes. Have you, you all have heard that statement before? No. So. Let go and let God. I think, so. probably. I think I have no problem. probably. He will take care of He will take care of you. Let go and let God. We've probably heard that statement used wrongly in the past. It can be used in a very bad way. But it is a true statement in some sense if we use it right. There is a right way to let go and let God. And that's simply stop trying to save yourself, right? Let go and let God. Uh, So now letting go and letting God can be misleading when we consider how we grow in the Christian life. Uh, Becoming more holy is not uh, just a work that God does to us. It's a work that God does with us, right? Right? Uh, you guys are probably learning this, uh, these sorts of things in Pastor Kirk's class that he teaches, right? Uh, what what kind of class is he teaching? What's the topic on? Remember? Well, I'm not talking about like this week, but the whole class. What's it? What's the? Spiritual th- formations. Yeah, spiritual formations. Uh, you're learning the spiritual disciplines, like prayer, uh, Bible reading, uh, things like that. And so that's what the silver chair is about, essentially. It's about the spiritual disciplines. And so let's see if y'all remember uh, what I taught you in the past. What's the main theme of the magician's nephew uh, as far as biblical themes are concerned? The creation. Creation in the fall, yeah. But What about lion, witch, and wardrobe? What's Redemption. that? Redemption. Redemption, very good. Uh, and what about Prince Caspian? Uh, just- Regeneration. No. Was something just- with the re Yeah, Loyalty and Government, very good Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there you go And so the Silver Chair is about spiritual disciplines And so uh, in the Silver Chair we have Eustace again But Eustace is a lot different than he used to be Uh, He's reformed, he's saved, he's regenerated, he's undragons. So he's a lot more of a pleasant guy in this book than he was in the other one and so we have Eustace again. We have a new girl in the book. What's her name? Polly. Wait, what's her last name? No. It was. Oh, Jill. Jill. What's Jill. her last name? I thought it was Polly. No. Jill Pole. Oh, Close. Oh. Jill Pole. Real humdinger of a name, right? Jill Pole. <laughs> <laughs> have you read this book before? That's probably why. Okay, so Eustace and Jill were called into Narnia, and they were given a mission by Aslan. And the silver chair is basically about the fulfillment of that mission, them accomplishing that mission, and how Aslan gave them certain signs to follow in order to complete the mission. And so the book is about the importance of following these signs, and it's about the discipline of following the signs. Okay. And the silver chair also teaches us that sanctification is by grace, just like salvation is by grace alone. Uh, because the group, uh, Eustace and Jill, did they do they uh, totally understand and get the first three signs that are given to them? No, they miss the first three signs uh, that are given to them. And does Aslan just basically shun them and kick them out of Narnia? This will never work. No. no, no, he's gracious to them. And so it's still by grace through faith. And eventually, you know, y'all have read this book before, they eventually accomplish their missions despite them failing a whole bunch of times. Okay? So our, our characters, we have Eustace. Uh, we already know him. Uh, do the Pavenzis ever show back up in Narnia, or are they done? Uh, they show back up. Right, but are, can they ever come back to Narnia? No. no. Yes. No. Yes. No. no. Which book do they come back to Narnia in? The Last one. The last battle? Okay. Well, it's kinda Narnia. Kind of Narnia. I mean sort of Narnia. It's like Kevin Narnia. Right, but it's not Narnia. Kind of. So not really. No. It's, it's, you know? No, it's not. So they never come back. they they've aged out, essentially. So uh, so now Eustace is the main character and Jill Pole is a is an important character and Aslan gives them that mission, right? What is that mission? What are they supposed to do? Raise your hand if you know the answer. Aaron? Are they looking for someone? They are looking for someone. they got to find someone. Who are they supposed to find? Caspians. uh, Wait. Am I right so far? So far, so good. Caspians, uh... Depends on what word you say after Caspians. (laughs) Is the dude, uh... so far, so good. Caspian's uh, grandfather? Nope, my. Nah. <laughs> 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 oh my. French. <laughs> French. Nope, Marie. His son. His son. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> so, what, anybody remember his name? Who? No. Prince Rillian. Rillian, yeah. So that's Caspian's son. And not only the son, but who else are they supposed to find? Marie? Um, the son's cap- capture prison. Of course. The person who stole one, I guess. Uh, not no. The person you gave him away? Mm. The person he's married to. His wife. The queen. Supposed to carry the queen back. Right? Oh, that's It's okay. Alright. Mm hmm. And so... Prince Bastian's queen? Yes. No, Rillian's queen. Rillian's wife. That's why I didn't sound right, because I thought it was Prince Oh, sorry. I might have misled you. No. So they're supposed to bring back Prince Rillian and uh, the queen. And uh, he met he met her in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, another character we have is Glimfeather. What kind of animal is Glimfeather? Owl. A what? Owl. An owl, right. Um, and... Uh, Glimfeather is an owl that meets them as they get to Narnia and uh, Glimfeather brings them to puddle pl- uh, Puddleglum. Who's that? What kind of a- what kind of creature is this? I forget. Um, well, he is. Huh? He's very tall. Right, but what do you remember the name of the creature? Um, the species? Um, um uh, wiggle, uh, wiggle something. Uh, wiggle something. Yeah. Uh, Marshwiggle. Marsh wiggle. Oh, Marshwiggle. Right. So, yeah, so they bring them... Uh, Glumfeather brings them to Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle. And Puddleglum agrees to go with them to the north to search for the prince. And on their mission, they encounter uh, the lady of the Green Kirtle, who is in the same family of the northern witches as the White Witch was. And then, of course, there's Aslan, who makes an appearance at the beginning and at the end of the book. Okay, but he's all throughout the book, too, right? So what 's going on in the book, so Caspian and the queen have the son named Rilian, and when Rilian is about twenty years old, his mother is killed by a green serpent when they are all out on a uh, on an expedition, okay uh, which is a, a ritual that they did to celebrate springtime, okay, so Rilian goes out to seek revenge on the serpent for what he's done. But he meets up with the green lady instead, and he falls in love with her. Uh, And because she's a witch, she enchants him. And he he disappears from Narnia. And Aslan calls up Eustace and Jill to find him. And as they start their adventure, they face many challenges, they face many problems, and they find themselves failing over and over again at different points in the journey. But good and faithful Aslan is working out his will and his good pleasure, even though they are making mistakes, right? And so before we get to the signs, specifically and the gift of the signs and why they are important, we have to talk about how... uh, she comes to how Jill comes to the position of even being able to receive the signs. Okay, so Eustace and Jill, they start out their time in the book, both uh, being students at a school called the Experiment House. Uh, could you imagine what kind of school that is? It's called the Experiment House. Imagine if our school is called the Experiment House. I don't think your parents would let y'all come to the school if it was called the Experiment House. Huh? Unless it was a joke, yeah. So uh, what kind of a house do you, or school do you think the experiment house is, really? A lab. A lab, yeah. They do experiments. Experimental. The children, of course. The children, of course. The children, of course. So the experiment house is, you think C.S. Lewis likes schools like this? No. He always has a, a, a mirror and an example like he's pointing to in reality like in his books. There's always a real-life example of the things that he has in his books. So there are there aren't places like the experiment house uh, out in the world. Still? Still, mm-hmm. definitely. Five, five, definitely. Five, 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 six, uh, go to any public school. There's your experiment house. <laughs> they do all sorts of experiments on children at these places. But what kind of experiments do they do on children? Behavioral experiments, psychological experiments. Uh, They're trying this whole thing out of taking students uh, away from their parents and uh, trying to indoctrinate them according to a different ethic than the Bible has. So C.S. Lewis hates schools like this. The school is completely godless. It's completely secular. And it's a place uh, in the book where ordinary kids are bullied, right? Right? And uh, goodness, that happens all the time at m- many secular schools, right? Kids are always getting bullied. Um, but the headmaster of the experiment house lets the bullies do their bullying because the headmaster thinks that bullies, bullies are interesting psychological subjects. And so the only way to continue to study bullies is you have to let them keep bullying. So they just think it's interesting. They don't think it's wrong or right. They don't have anything to say about it, but it's very interesting. So they continue to let these bullies do their thing. And so Eustace, before he was changed in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he fit right in here. He used to do all the bullying, right? But now he's different, and he's still at the school. His situation hasn't changed, but his heart has changed. And now he's found himself standing up to the bullies that run the school. And uh, he finds Jill, Pole, crying behind the gym because of the way the bullies have been treating her. And as they talk, Eustace tells her about Narnia, and he explains the reasons why he is now different. He's not the same as he used to be, and she's amazed by that, and he's explaining why. And they both together call out to Aslan Uh, But they are interrupted by the bullies. The bullies find them. And in order to escape the bullies, they open a door in one of the walls of the school grounds. And they both uh, find themselves, as they pass through the door, in where? No, not exactly. What's that precipice called? I don't remember. Not not that precipice you're talking about later. But where's the land? Aslan's country. That's different than Narnia, right? Aslan's country. And so they come into Aslan's country, and as they're walking along in Aslan's country, they come to a precipice. They come to the edge of a cliff. And because Jill uh, is despising Eustace because of his fear of heights, as he should have if if you're looking over a giant precipice like that, I would be afraid to go to the edge. She is annoyed with him. And so she shows off a little bit by standing at the edge of the cliff, too close to the edge. And then what happens? Well, she loses her balance and she ends up falling uh, or, or actually trying to fall. And then Eustace trying to stop her from falling. He, he's the one that ends up falling. Right? And so at this moment, who appears and saves Aslan, the day? Aslan. Aslan saves the day. And what does uh, Aslan do to Eustace to save him? He He blew. What did he blow? His nose? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes. He blew on Eustace and blew him all the way to Narnia. Okay? And all of this happened in order to provide Jill with the same uh, type of necessary spiritual uh, uh, experience that Eustace had in the last book. So Aslan got Jill by herself, and now Aslan, in his divine plan, is going to regenerate her like he regenerated Eustace. Okay, so Eustace was undragoned, and of course we learned that that was something he couldn't do by himself, right? And Jill, even though she wasn't nearly as much of a brat as Eustace was, uh, she was still in need of that same transformation, and it's the sin that she commits in Aslan's country that sets the stage for all of this. Okay, so what was her what was her sin by the cliff? Taunting, taunting, showing sure <laughs> off, showing off, and despising Eustace, having a sense of self righteousness. I'm not afraid of the cliff. You're so you're so stupid for being afraid of a cliff. You know, that's her sin of being unkind to her friend, being hateful to her friend. And she realizes that, I guess, after my friend would be blown miles and miles out of sight by, you know, uh, just randomly disappears. I'd probably be pretty upset, too, and feel bad about it. And so she feels bad about it. And then she cries a little while and she's a good cry over it. And then she realizes that she has become very thirsty and, uh. In other words, she realizes, we can easily put this in a spiritual context, she needs what? She needs water, but what does she need? She needs grace. She needs grace. And so she goes out looking for water because she's thirsty. And does she find water? Yeah, she finds a stream. Um, But what's the problem here? There's a lion by the stream. There's a a lion separating her. Uh, from the stream. And so she feels like she is going to die without this water. She is deathly thirsty. And, uh, and she wants the water, but she, ideally she would like to have the water without the lion, right? So if water is a picture of grace in this picture, what does she want? She wants grace without God. God. She wants grace without submission to the king of grace, right? And so as she talks to the lion, uh, she realizes that the lion talks first, and she discovers as she talks to him that he is the kind of lion who does not guarantee her safety when uh, it comes to her coming close to him and getting this water, okay? So he's not making any deals in saying that I'm not going to eat you if you come to the stream. I might eat you, Okay. But he also tells her, well, there's no other stream around, so you're going to die if you don't drink from this one. So he refuses to move from the stream. And that's for her sake. That's for her benefit uh, because she's going to have to risk it. Isn't that how it is when we follow Christ? Christ doesn't budge. He doesn't move. Uh, we cannot have grace, and we cannot have the living water without submission to the king. Okay, and so she asks him, "Hey, do you eat little girls?" And he says, "What does he say?" Anybody remember? This is great, great stuff. Sorry. Uh, I I have before, like I have. Yes, there's more than that, though. He says, "Yes, he has. He's even eaten kings. He's eaten kings. He's even eaten entire empires, and that would include little girls." So Aslan is making the point that he does not cut deals with anybody and that the repentant sinner who comes to him must do so without any conditions at all, okay? And so she's going to die. She has no choice, so she's just going to risk it. She's gonna if, if the lion eats her, well, she was going to die anyway because if she would have never went to the water, you would die if you went too close to the water lines, you would die. You don't have a choice. Maybe he'll spare me. Okay, so she she finally goes to the water to drink. And then as she drinks the water, this is a a picture of what? Conversion. Conversion. So she says to Aslan that she and Eustace had called out to someone named Aslan. Aslan reveals himself to her, says, my name is Aslan. And she's like, oh yeah, that Eustace told me that... uh, that he called out to a lion named Aslan. Are you the same person? Right? And he says he is the same person. And he let her know that she wouldn't have called out to him at all unless what? He had been Calling calling out to her. Right. So that's just like the Bible says. We love him because he first loved us. And when we come to Christ, it's only possible because Jesus has called on us first. Now, it's in this setting with Jill, well converted, now she's converted, that Aslan gives her the signs to follow. She was not ready to, uh, to receive these signs prior to her conversion. And so the language that Aslan uses in teaching her these signs uh, sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. I'll read it to you. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So these are the signs uh, of Aslan. The signs are the laws of Aslan. That's what she was supposed to follow. They're his commandments. And he tells Jill to do what? To memorize them, to internalize them, to get them down into her bones, so that when the time comes, when she needs it, the appropriate sign is going to be seen as fulfilled. And the complications that she could encounter on her journey will be avoided because she knows the signs. Okay? This is the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification. Okay? What, what is sanctification? Is there a way that you can put it in your own words? I'm sure you all have learned about this in Pastor Kirk's class, right? The word Sanctification. What's that mean? Uh, the cleansing of the spirit. Yeah, to sanctify something means to do what? Uh, to purify it. Sanct. I'll throw some Latin back at y'all. Sanctus, Spiritus Sanctus. sanctus. What's that mean? To uh, uh, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So, so what does sanct, what does sanctus mean? Holy. Holy or set apart. So, when you're being sanctified, what are you being made? Glory. Hor- Holified. Holy, holified, I like that. Holified. Yeah, holified. Uh, yeah, you're being made holy. That's right. So, how, do, how are we made more holy in this life? First, we, we must be regenerated, right? That's the only way uh, that we can even be declared holy. But what else do we do in order to be holy as God is holy? It's easy. I'm like lobbing this picture off. Like- I just mentioned it. What do you do? If you love me, you will obey. obey, follow, keep my commandments. That's how we become more holy in the context of a relationship with Christ. Because we love God, the father so much, and we want to be more like him. The, what is the way that we do that? We keep his laws. His laws are a witness and a testimony to his character. So we keep his laws. Okay. And so <clears throat> that's sanctification. That's how a Christian makes progress in the Christian life, following God's law. Now, of course, are we saved by law? If we keep on following God's law, does that mean that God, because he sees how much we obey his law, he saves us? No, not at all. No, all of the Christian life is to be lived out by grace. And what is grace? That's unmerited, unworked for favor with God. Okay, so even following and keeping God's laws is to be done in the context of grace. Okay, but the reason for taking the signs in this way is that it gives grace raw material to work on, and that raw material must also be understood as grace. See, when we see God's word with the eyes of faith, we are not going to set grace and law apart as if they're enemies, okay? Uh, Lewis compares this thing with, uh, learning how to dance, right? Any of y'all know how to dance? Okay. Any of y'all know how to dance with like a partner? Oh, gross. I'm just asking. I don't... Yeah. Okay. Well, good. And so whenever you're first learning how to dance, are you really dancing? Not really. What are you doing mostly? Probably just ca- counting one, Two, three, whatever the dance is. One, two, three, four. You're focusing on the moves themselves, right? But after a while, if you keep practicing, uh, you're going to master these moves. And you don't have to think about them as much anymore. And so it's going to be possible for you to stop counting and then start to think about the, we aren't ready for this yet, the person you're dancing with, right? So, you know, one day, God willing, all of you will be married and you'll have your first dance at your wedding, right? And you don't want to be focused on looking at your feet and making sure you're not stepping on your spouse's toes But when you dance, right? Hopefully, you're going to be focused on each other and you'll be dancing together and you're not really thinking about all of that, right? But at first, it's learning how to dance is pretty awkward. Um, and so it's the same here. So if Jill had done what Aslane had told her to do, which was to... As Deuteronomy 6 says, to say the signs every night, repeat them again every morning, um, always have them on the front of your mind, memorize them back and front, get them into your bones. Live live out these signs in everything you do. If uh, she would have done that, the signs would have been second nature to her, like dancing is, if you practice. And then she would have been free to think about Aslan And his guidance, she would have been thinking about the one she was dancing with. You know, in the Christian life, we're all, you can consider it like a dance. We're all dancing with uh, the Lord. We're all dancing with our Heavenly Father as we go through this life. And for a while, it's perfectly natural for us to think about the steps, right? So, but we have to internalize the steps. We have to internalize the law so that we don't have to think about all of the, uh, just the sake of, following the law in and of itself, we follow the law, we dance uh, in this world with our heavenly father in order to have greater fellowship with him. Okay. And Jill Pohl did not do that. Uh, She did not keep the signs in the front of her mind. She did not memorize the sign. And that's why she got in so much trouble so quickly. She neglected her spiritual disciplines And then uh, they got all muddled up in her mind because she didn't study them. And uh, and then she was distracted uh, by a whole bunch of things, right? And soon, she and Eustace, they got themselves in a position where they were really cold and they could think of nothing else but getting warm, uh, which is not what they were told to think about. This is not to say that law and gospel aren't two different things, okay? They are different. But... It demonstrates that our attitude towards both of them is determined by our spiritual state. Okay, so in one sense, the the law and the gospel can be contrasted in the same way that uh, a carrot and a stick can be contrasted in their power to to motivate a, a beast like a mule, like a beast of burden. Okay, anybody, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Like, if you want to get a beast of burden or mule or an ox to go somewhere. One way to do that in the past was to as you're uh, riding the ox or mule or as you're walking in front of it, you have a carrot dangling on a stick, right? And as the mule moves, what are you doing? You're moving with it. So the carrot is always in front of the mule's eyes. So, because he wants to eat the carrot, he keeps on moving towards the carrot, and you're getting him to do what you wanted to do, which is to go from this place to that place, right? Everybody understand that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in a, in a way, we can think of God's law as uh, the stick, in a sense, okay? So as the stick of God's law uh, threatens the unbeliever, because you can, you can dangle a carrot from a stick, but what else can you do to a mule with a stick? And hit him with it. <laughs> maybe that'll get him to move. You can incite pain uh, on his backside, and maybe he'll go then, right? So the stick of God's law can work like that. It threatens the unbeliever as he approaches a holy God. And what does the stick of God's law do to the unbeliever without regeneration? Discipline. Well, it can't be discipline. He's not a child of God yet. Hmm condemns him. The law of God condemns you, right? It shows you that you you need, that you're destined for hell, that you do not measure up in the eyes of a holy God, right? And so it could either drive you to despair, like it did for Judas Iscariot, right? Or it could uh, motivate you to see if there's a savior, to find a savior to help you through this, okay? So the stick of God's law can condemn you and drive you to Christ. But God doesn't only motivate with a stick, right? He also uh, ties a string and a carrot on the end of the stick. Uh, And what's that carrot? The carrot's the gospel, right? So you can see how the stick and the carrot are working together to to move you where God wants you to go, right? So are the stick and the carrot different things by themselves? Yeah, one could motivate you to go somewhere because it's good stuff. The other one could motivate you to try to go somewhere because it's a bad thing. It's a stick hitting you, right? But these two things can work together even though they're different. You can tie the carrot to the stick and they both work together. So that's how God's law and the gospel work together. Although they're distinct and they're different, God uses them both to drive us to Christ, okay? So the law condemns the unbeliever, and the gospel uh, appeals to uh, the unbeliever, attracting him to Christ, if God's already calling him. And so God both pushes, hits from behind, and he also pulls, dangles the carrot in front of us to move us into his kingdom. And it's in this way that the law and the gospel can be contrasted, okay? Okay. The reaction of believers and unbelievers to both the law and the gospel is not a story in contrast, but it's a story that shows the great divide between these groups. Those who reject Christ, what do they do? They hate the law. Uh, Why? Because it condemns them, right? And they, and because they hate the law, they also hate the gospel. Uh, And Paul points this out in 2 Corinthians 2.16 when he says that the smell of Christ that pagans sense among believers is the, quote, aroma of death to them, unquote. So to unbelievers, the smell of Christ, uh, if that pagan hates God, is an aroma of death to them. But what about those who are being driven to trust in Christ? Is it an aroma of death? No, it's a sweet aroma of life. And law, instead of being only a stick that threatens hell, is now a pathway that believers now want to walk because they want to please God with all they they do, they say, and they think, right? And in this way, Christians uh, striving to keep the law of God by loving God and their neighbors, although imperfectly, they find the law to be a wonderful expression of God's grace. Because God doesn't want to leave us in the dark. But he tells us of how we can live a life that's pleasing to him. And he uses the law to do that. Right? You understand that? Yeah. So this reminds me of Dante's comedy. His divine comedy. Right? Some of us read that last year. And we are able to see in that book the contrast between believers and unbelievers. It's played out in the comedy. Now, if some of you all remember... Dante's comedy, what does it do? It chronicles Dante's visit to where? Uh To hell? We didn't read all of it. There's more to it than that. So it chronicles Dante's visit to hell, to purgatory, and to heaven. Okay. And the believers that Dante meets in hell, they're down there suffering all sorts of terrible punishments. And while they're suffering, are they saying, Oh, I wish I could follow Jesus. I wish I could do that. Are they saying that? I'm setting you up. No, no. What are they doing instead in their attitudes to God? Oh, I hate you. They're, They're in hell suffering all of these terrible torments, but at the same time, they're hating God. They're raising their fists in defiance to God. So these souls that are damned, they hate the law and they hate the gospel because they hate the God that made both of these things. Right? But what about the souls in purgatory? Right? Now, we all know purgatory is not a real thing, but uh, let's just work with Dante here. So, what are the souls in purgatory doing there? What is the purpose of purgatory, according to Dante? No idea. That's okay. I don't know Dante. That's okay. I'm going to teach you. Those that have read this before. Or though we talked about purgatory a bunch last year and how it's just like waiting room. how unbiblical it is, yeah, it's essentially a waiting room. But they're not just sitting at a you know in like a waiting room at a doctor's office. They're doing things. What are they doing? Work. They're working. They're suffering and working and doing actually some of the same things that the guys in hell are doing. Uh, but they're working for the purpose of being cleansed for their sins. Okay. And in order to be cleansed of their sins, they have to suffer punishments that are very similar to the ones that are being suffered in hell. But the reaction of these believers in purgatory is very, very different. They see the punishments that they're receiving not as bad and tyrannical. They're not raising their fists at God, you know, telling them how terrible He is. No, they're receiving these punishments as a just and a good thing. So. They both love the law and the gospel because both of these things came from the God that they love. Now, purgatory is not a biblical concept and it's not something that uh, we should hang our hat on in the Christian life in any way, shape, or form, right? Salvation is by grace through faith, not by any sort of works that we could do here on this earth or in any you know imaginary purgatory later. But I'm just telling you the difference between the unbeliever's attitude and, and their... Um, Uh, how much they love the law and the gospel versus believers. Unbelievers hate the law. They hate the gospel. Believers love the law and love the gospel. So when God gives us his law, which he has, where's his law located? In the Bible, right? And he instructs us with this law to meditate on it day and night and to teach our children when we walk along the road, when we rise up, when we lie down, He's not taking the shortcut in our lives, okay? He's not giving us a short way to salvation. Now, He saved us, but we have to live our entire lives as Christians, obeying His law and walking on the road to holiness, continuously being uh, uh, more and more holy as He is holy. See, we're too. it's easy for us to think that God is interested in the rules only for their own sake. Be honest. Have you ever thought that? Why does God make us follow all these rules? It just seems he just must really like rules, right? But that's not it. We're too prone to think that. Uh, No, the reason that the Lord has us follow these rules is because these rules are forming us and they're changing us sometimes in a way that's so subtle and small over a small period of time that we can't even see it, okay? Okay. Um, He is interested in growing a certain kind of creature. He wants us to be a certain way by the end of our lives or by the time we see him in glory. Okay? He's interested in growing a kind of creature. Okay? And that kind of creature that he wants to grow is the one who can think of doing this when it seems that everybody in his mind and body wants to do that. Okay? This and that. But so once out of Aslan's country, we'll read, that the air is thicker and there are a lot more distractions. And then this kind of place where in an Aslan's country, it's easy to follow uh, Aslan's laws and signs, right? Why is that? Because it's a pleasant place. Uh, There aren't necessarily uh, dangerous and bad things happening in Aslan's country. But once you get back to Narnia, you get back down to earth, there are uh, lots of temptations Uh, And lots of pitfalls and potential uh, afflictions and things that can happen to us. And it's in that kind of place, in the place we live now, where all of these signs are a great help and an encouragement to us in accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish. And because we live in a world that's a lot like Narnia in this regard, it would be safe to say that C.S. Lewis wants children, the children that read his books, to learn to say their prayers every day, uh, and to read their Bibles and to go to church; otherwise, they would never be able to defeat the witch. Right? We have a witch in our world, right? Who is that? It's Joe Biden. <laughs> no, not Joe Biden. He might work for the witch. I'm not sure. Who's the witch? Easy, yeah, the devil. That's right. That's right. And the way that we can defeat the devil the way that we can live victoriously over the kingdom of darkness is to follow the signs, okay? We have to know what these signs are, and we have to internalize these signs and get these signs into our bones as we live uh, under God's law by His grace. And I pray that each and every one of you, as you live your lives, will be able to do that more and more.